blame the sound guy, but that was totally that was totally my fault. I forgot to unmute myself. Chris was waving, so apologies to Chris, the sound guy. Totally my fault. Uh, how is everybody this morning? Good, good. Yeah, everybody sounds okay. Summer, summer street, and everybody mostly okay. Except for the gardeners, all the gardeners are sad because there's no rain. I am not sad. You know why? Because I hate mowing my yard. And so I mowed my yard like twice and have it mowed it uh, for a solid month. And I love that. It doesn't bother me a bit that it's just burned to nothing. That is my favorite type of yard. So uh, it is awesome to be here with you all this morning. We're going to start off today with a question. What is one thing that you would never tolerate in marriage. Now, some of you are not married, but you can still imagine something that you would never tolerate in marriage. Many of you are, and you could probably imagine some things that you would not tolerate in a marriage. Many would say unfaithfulness or lying. Now, recently, I don't know how I found this, but I came across a list on marriage.com of 25 things that should never be tolerated in a marriage. And when I saw that 25, that's a, that's a lot of things to not tolerate in a marriage. So I clicked on the little link because I was intrigued. And the first couple of things were, were super reasonable. It was physical and emotional abuse. And, and the list included a lot of other things that should not be tolerated as well. 23 other things, in fact, for those of you that don't enjoy doing math. They included stonewalling ignoring boundaries and needs, never apologizing, manipulation, jealousy, comparing irrationally, demeaning statements, shaming, gaslighting, breaking trust, having to make excuses, excuses, neediness and clinging, lying, hurtful comments, denying friends, dismissing family, lack of financial control, refusal to cooperate, negativity, entitlement, and disrespect. That is quite a list. Now, I'm not saying the things on those lists are not problematic behaviors that need to be dealt with, but I've got some news. A person that will not tolerate any of those things will not be married for long, right? I've experienced this in my own life in the past 24 hours. My wife has had to tolerate some things from me that, uh, that maybe would fit in various parts of that list. This may be shocking to some of you. I'm not a perfect husband. Part of being married is patiently responding to your spouse's shortcomings, recognizing they are doing the same with you. Every relationship that involves people must include a certain amount of toleration. That being said, there are lines that cannot be crossed. As Liz Lemon famously pointed out, there are times in a relationship where the only appropriate response is, that's a deal breaker. In general, God does not have deal breakers. He responds to our human shortcomings with grace and mercy. It is a good thing for us, God doesn't have deal breakers because whether we realize it or not, we have transgressed just about every boundary God has communicated to us. There is, however, one thing the Bible states will not be tolerated. Today, for our continuing series on the Holy Spirit, we are going to look at the sin which the Bible tells us is unforgivable. 
So if you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read verses 22 through 32. If you like reading from the Pew Bible, those verses on page 767, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Excuse me. That is Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Then a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute was brought to him. This is brought to Jesus. And he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. When these verses state a particular sin is unforgivable, Christians understandably take notice. The general position that Christians, especially those of a more evangelical persuasion, hold is that no sin is unforgivable. Like many of you, my faith was shaped in a setting where I was told that through Jesus, forgiveness was available for any sin. The classic biblical examples that are given were both heroes of the faith that I have referenced in sermons many times before. King David definitely had an affair with Bathsheba in which she may have not been a willing participant. He then had her husband Uriah murdered by sending him into battle. The Apostle Paul experienced his own forgiveness after persecuting Christians. He was the, a leader in the stoning death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. If you go on Google and ask the question, does God forgive all sins? Several websites will come up affirming he does. On the website Christianity.com, the answer given is consistent with what you would often hear Christians say in response to the question. It says, quote, yes, he does. And he also expects us to forgive others. God's ultimate example of forgiving us is through Christ's sacrifice because we have been redeemed. This is something we can remember every time doubt arises. 
a longer answer to the same question on the Desiring God blog gives a similar answer with, with greater theological exploration. The general Christian belief that forgiveness is available for any sin is not internet misinformation or an untruth that Christians have wrongly embraced. Forgiveness being available to us is consistent with the witness of Scripture. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 8.12 adds, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There are dozens of verses that indicate God's willingness to forgive every trespass. The grace of Jesus Christ is more than enough to cover any sin. Whereas forgiveness being available for sin is clearly acknowledged Throughout scripture, today's verses are much less clear. One Bible commentator notes Jesus' proclamation in these verses about an unforgivable sin is one of Jesus' most enigmatic, controversial, and haunting statements. Most Christians struggle to know, to know what to make of the unforgivable sin, so we mostly ignore it. You can't really blame everyday Christians for just saying all sins can be forgiven. They're, they're responding to a very specific type of question. The Christian saying all sins can be forgiven is generally responding to someone who is in the midst of a spiritual crisis. The person posing the question fears that they may have done something that has forever separated them from the love of God. Normally, the concern they have is obviously not the unforgivable sin. If the response to someone asking if, if they can be forgiven were, yes, unless you blasphemed the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't expect that to go over very well. We wouldn't expect it to be well received. The person asking would immediately have more questions. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Is there a chance that I have done that through my actions? Because the answer to that last question is normally no. It's easier just to say broadly, God will forgive all sins through Jesus Christ. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit mostly doesn't get discussed. So it's normal for these verses to catch Christians off guard. Wait, what, what did Jesus say? How does that fit with the rest of Scripture? He says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus affirms the general Christian belief that every sin can be forgiven except for this one sin, except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We cannot simply ignore these verses, any exception to the universal rule of forgiveness being available 
for all sins is a pretty big exception. We need to know what we are supposed to be avoiding, right? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? That's the pressing question. So let's start with what blasphemy is. This is one of those words that doesn't get used outside of Christian context. And it doesn't even really get used by Christians anymore. Although it turns out Stephen A. Smith, I don't know if you guys know who Stephen A. Smith is. He's a sports commentator on ESPN. He does like to yell routinely that those who argue with him are committing blasphemy. So if someone says the Cowboys are Super Bowl contenders, Stephen A. Smith will say that is blasphemous. It is his go-to response when he strongly disagrees with a point being made. But with that random exception of Stephen A's frequent usage, blasphemy is a word we just don't use in our society anymore. For blasphemy to happen, someone has to say something that goes against a prevailing orthodoxy. We live in a world without any real orthodoxy. Everything is a matter of personal conviction. Back in 1820, the word blasphemy was used about four times more frequently than it is today, according to the Google Ingram search tool that you can use to look at how frequently words have been used over time in published writings. For the past couple of hundred years, there hasn't been enough agreement on what is true to be able to call hardly any statement blasphemy. Well, the word is not in common use, we're all familiar with it. Blasphemy is speaking about God with contempt and untruths. We have a sense of what blasphemy is, but we're just uncomfortable with the word in practice. After all, we believe in free speech. People have a right to say what they think. Calling something blasphemy, it's like the ultimate cancel culture. It's not, you're shutting that person down. Anyone saying blasphemy is being as, as judgmental as you can possibly be. And, and nobody wants to be judgmental. Pew Research tells us that 40% of the countries in the world still had blasphemy laws as of 2019. But if you look at the list of those countries that have blasphemy laws, they're all the countries that we have some serious concerns and questions about. They are countries that we think of as backwards. That some sort of centrally controlled religious orthodoxy should limit a person's speech is repulsive to us. The very idea kind of agitates our American sensibilities. We want freedom to speak what we believe is true and what we are feeling at the moment. The freedom to speak, even when what is being said is wrong, is one of the highest values of Americans. We would agree with John Milton who said, Give me liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. Our concern would be the same as George Washington, who said, If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent, we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. I suppose we can take some comfort 
in the knowledge that the Bible is not as harsh when it comes to blasphemy as you would actually think it would be. In the first part of verse 31 from today's text, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. All, all that blasphemy directed at God and Jesus, thank goodness that is the case. We accidentally blaspheme God all the time. It, and to some extent, anytime we say something that is untrue about God, we are blasphemed. Every attribute God has, he has completely. Even questioning God's complete goodness is blasphemy. If God didn't show us a ton of grace when we talked about him, we would not be able to talk about him at all. Knowing this, God consistently responds to blasphemy with extreme patience. This is especially true when the person who says the wrong thing about God is doing so from a genuine perspective. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk says to God, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not say? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at what is wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk accuses God of not hearing the cries of the oppressed doing nothing about iniquity and allowing justice to be perverted. God responds not by killing Habakkuk for his blasphemous questions, but by explaining to him how he is at work. Jesus shows a similar patience towards those who say things that are wrong about him. In John chapter 7, a crowd says that Jesus is demon-possessed. Instead of striking them dead with a bolt of lightning, he simply tries to correct their faulty understanding. So, if blasphemy is not a deal-breaker, when it is directed at Jesus or God, why is it unforgivable when it directed at the Holy Spirit? To answer that question, we must remind ourselves of the unique role of the Holy Spirit in relation to humanity. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. He teaches us how to live. We talked about our need for the Spirit's teaching in every area of life last week. I can't know how to live apart from the Spirit. Even more importantly, the Holy Spirit teaches us who Jesus is. We cannot know who Jesus is apart from the Spirit. This is obviously a problem. By blaspheming the Spirit, a person is in effect denying the truth of Jesus' personhood and the pathway of, a, of atonement for sin the Holy Spirit is teaching. The truth from the Holy Spirit communicates grace. So without truth, 
If you're calling truth a lie, if you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, then judgment becomes inevitable. It is not that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is so much worse than blaspheming God. The problem is such blaspheming condemns the person doing it to a state of perpetual ignorance. In these verses, the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus through the miracles Jesus is performing. Jesus' warning is that the Pharisees are perilously close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit by denying what the Holy Spirit is revealing about Jesus through the miracles the Spirit is making it possible for Jesus to do. N.T. Wright, the British Bible scholar, sums up what is happening nicely when he says, if you look at the work of the Holy Spirit and say, that must be the work of the devil, then there is literally no hope because the hope comes in precisely the work of the Holy Spirit that you have denied and blasphemed. It is not unusual for Christians to wonder if they are guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. As a pastor, this is a conversation I've had more than once. Those who come to me feel a lot of anxiety. They are unable to operate in a spiritually healthy way due to the fear they feel over whether or not they are guilty of this, this unforgivable sin. For many, just knowing what this sin involves is sufficient to do away with any concerns they might have. Most people don't feel they've ever come particularly close to ascribing some good thing that was clearly from God to evil. But there are those that still question if they have called the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of Satan, unintentionally. Unintentional ignorance is not what these verses are referring to. The Pharisees are malicious in their slander. Their accusations are the result of hearts that are hardened to the truth. Christians must rest in the knowledge that no part of our salvation is dependent on who we are. Salvation is a result of faith in who God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is. We do not save ourselves in the first place. Neither can we maintain our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the means by which our salvation is initiated and maintained. It must be remembered that the Spirit, as the purveyor of truth, cannot blaspheme anything, much less blaspheme against himself. All Christians have the Spirit residing in them. For Christians, our salvation is in God alone. Normally, I find when people are worried about their spiritual status, they're, they're just looking in the wrong direction. They're looking down at themselves instead of up at the Lord. The solution to any concern a person might have about their own salvation 
is not focusing on themselves. It's not trying to unravel what was going on in their mind when they said certain things or did certain things. The solution is to look up at our Lord and Savior. To remember that God created us, Jesus died for us, and the Holy Spirit delivered these truths into our hearts in spite of our ignorance. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is a deal breaker, but the operation of the Holy Spirit ensures Christians do not blaspheme the Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you'd be with those of us here for any confusion that might still exist over these verses, Lord. I pray that we would continue to look to you for clarity, and I also pray that if anybody is, has been wrestling with this issue or is wrestling with this issue in their lives, Lord, that they would not keep it to themselves, Lord, that they would speak to, to myself or, or someone else that they trust and can provide good counsel in this case, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace that you so willingly showed us. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that the Holy Spirit operates to bring about truth, to inform us of your truth in this world, Lord. And we thank you that you save us from ourselves, from our own brokenness and our own ignorance, Lord. We rejoice in all these things. In Jesus' name.